Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. From the letter of Paul to the Philippians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is not an ancient tradition that the Gospel accounts of the Transfiguration be read on the last Sunday after the Epiphany. It is actually a modern innovation to, on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, read all about Jesus transfigured on the mountain. The idea in these times is that the image of the glory of Christ, the image which the Christian hopes to behold for all eternity, will be a compelling one to draw us through the hard disciplines of Lent. And while I'm sympathetic with that idea, in fact, I want you to hear this this morning, I'm very sympathetic to that idea. In fact, I really love it. I must say that as I study the classic Anglican lectionaries, which are medieval lectionaries, I'm filled with a romanticism for the way things once were. When the gospel reading for this Sunday came from the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, behold, Jesus says, we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. As opposed to the idea that we ascend the Mount of Transfiguration prior to Ash Wednesday, only to come back down again from glory into what some might say is the gloom of Lent. The idea in these medieval lectionaries is that in Lent, before it even begins, we ascend to Jerusalem with Jesus to see the very things which the prophets foretold the Son of Man delivered up to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, scourged, killed, and finally, on the third day, risen from the dead. Jesus, as he comes down from that Mount of Transfiguration, tells the disciples that were there to not tell anyone of the vision until what? He had risen from the dead. These older, more ancient lectionaries turn our minds and therefore our hearts not to the glory of Jesus, but to think upon what we will witness, a shameful death, the Lord delivered into the hands of sinners to suffer death upon the cross and only then be delivered up from the bond of death in triumph and in great glory. One can certainly speculate as to why this change was made in the modern church, and I'm sure that some of you are speculating now. It is, to be sure, a wonderful thing to gaze upon the glory of Christ. It is the very thing for which you and I were made. But at the end of the day, we're not there yet. We're not ready for it. We, like the disciples at this image of transfiguration, must fall on our faces filled with a mix of awe and fear. Either that, or it's falsely comforting, and we might say, let's build some booths here so that we can hang out for a while, maybe forever, and just enjoy this. It is understandable that we should desire the vision of the glory of Jesus to draw us to the cross, and it is a true thing to say. What should not be lost, however, is the truth that there is a glory in the cross as well. A glory in the Lord's saving death. 
Yes, it is bloody. Yes, it is unpleasant. Yes, it is violent. Yes, it is an image upon which we don't really want to dwell. But I'm reminded of that old prayer, which is a saying in my priestly society, we should glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in him is our salvation, our death, and resurrection. By him we are saved and made free. I've been thinking lately about how modern people are so terribly removed from death. In fact, we talked about this in the Brazos Fellows Retreat just this past weekend. How remote we are from death. When my grandmother died a few years back, only two of her seven children had ever witnessed someone dying. And they were a nurse and a doctor. As a priest, I've witnessed countless deaths, and I consider it a privilege to be present for such an intimate moment, but I'm always surprised by how unacquainted and unfamiliar families are with it. I'll often go into a hospital room or a room where hospice care is being given, and the family will say, do you think it's time yet? And I'll say, not quite, <laughs> not quite yet. Or they'll, they'll, they'll it'll be very clear this person is about to die and they'll say, do you, do you think he's got some more time left? Do you think he'll recover? And I'll say, I don't think it's very likely because they've never seen it before. But anyone who has watched a person die knows what happens. They know what to look for. And when the person finally does die, that body is whisked off to the hospital morgue and in many cases, indeed most cases today, cremated as quickly as possible. Once that body bag is zipped up, you never see that person again. Last summer at Neshota House during a lunch, several of my classmates had a conversation with the theologian, Father John Baer. And we said, you know, if, if you were in our shoes, what would you do to, to catechize your children? What would you do to raise up your children to be Christians? And he said, the most important thing you can do is expose them to death. I thought that was such a profound answer. And the research aligns with this. One of the most reliable predictors of post-traumatic stress disorder is the level of a person's naivety. The higher their naivety, the higher they are exposed to PTSD. If they're unacquainted with death, suffering, and pain, when it comes suddenly and unexpectedly, when their psyches are ill-prepared, the consequences can be devastating. We've learned as well that when it comes to people who've experienced great trauma, the most important thing to do in the face of healing is not whisk ourselves off to Disney World, not go on a roller coaster ride and eat candy and ice cream, but what? To think about it, to meditate on it, to tell the story, to talk about it, to consider it carefully. It is not pleasant or joyous, but it is essential. When we were in uh, northern Iraq last Easter, we went to a trauma center that uh, Jerry and Stacy Kramer have set up for Yazidi orphans who had seen utter terrors committed by ISIS on Mount Sinjar way on back several years ago. In many cases, they lost both parents or one parent, a father, or they... Uh, had seen untold atrocities. 
And in one part of the trauma center, there were drawings on the walls done in crayon like little kids would draw something. But instead of the son and mom and dad and brothers and sisters, they had depicted what they saw on that day. The drawings depicted a violence that they had seen. And all of this was fully intentional. It was a part of their therapy, a way of helping these children cope and rebuild. And we Christians should not be surprised by such things. In the book of Numbers, when the Lord sent serpents among the wandering children of Israel to bite them, Moses was instructed to make a bronze fiery serpent and stick it up on a pole so that if a serpent bit any man, he would gaze at the bronze serpent and live. That is a powerful idea. A very powerful, groundbreaking idea in the history of the world. Think about it for a moment. You have to look and gaze upon an icon of the very thing that has the capacity to kill you. Indeed, you have to look at the image of the very thing that might have killed you. That has bitten you, which has mortally wounded you. You have to stare at it in order to be saved. It's the only way that you can live. And we see this image all the time, and we don't even think a thing of it. If you just look at the next ambulance you see... In town, they're right there, the serpent on, on a pole. Next time a doctor gives you their business card, if that even happens anymore, it's right there. And of course we know that later in the Gospel of John, Jesus draws a connection between this bronze serpent in the book of Numbers and his coming passion. And as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, the, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is by gazing upon the passion, upon that vision of sacrificial love, that our wounded souls receive healing and new life. The journey of Lent is a journey into light and life, the very light and life of the gospel. It is a journey undertaken by faith in and for the sake of Christ, that we may be found in him, that we may consider whatever glory or comfort this world offers to us as loss. In order to do that, we must face the deep unpleasantness of the cross. The blood, the shame, the death. And we must face the deep horror that it was our sin that nailed him there. Over the next few days, I want to urge you to look upon the cross to gaze and to see the glory of it. Not to avoid the glory of the transfiguration. It's an important thing. It's given in Scripture for a reason. But to understand at what cost that glory 
came, which you and I hope to enjoy. The temptation on this Sunday is to say something about the joy of a transfigured life in Jesus Christ without proclaiming his saving death. For the modern preacher, this has the benefit of setting aside unpleasant truths, truths about sin and about suffering and about death. It's Lent. So deep self-examination will certainly come, as well it should, Deep mourning and deep lament will come too. Tears of grief and outpourings of contrition. Let this mourning for sin drive you to confession, to the gift of repentance. Let it be that you spend Lent not so much in repentance as in the joy of contemplation of the mysteries of redemption. Going up to Jerusalem to gaze, to see, and to behold. Perhaps you might pray with Paul that you may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Maybe you might pray not only to share in the sufferings of Jesus, but to share in the sufferings of others. Or to share your sufferings with others. Perhaps you might pray to make Jesus and him crucified your own, just as he has made you his own. Perhaps you might let go of what is past, what lies behind, and strain forward to what lies ahead. As Jesus calls you upward to Jerusalem, both the Jerusalem in which he once died and the heavenly Jerusalem in which he constantly offers himself and his body over to the Father. A priestly friend of mine once was accosted by a woman after church who had just been to the Holy Land, and she said, Father, have you ever been to the Holy Land? And he, he said, you know what I'm paid here. There's, I can't go to the Holy Land. And, and she, but you gotta go. And he, and he said, I'm so busy. Would you just leave me alone? And, and, and finally she said, but Father, I mean, it's so important that you go to the Holy Land. And, and he finally just said, Lady, I go there every year in the liturgy. I go there every Lent. He can be difficult sometimes. Let us, though, go up to Jerusalem. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.